0: listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips, and reflections. What I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We chose play. We have joy every day. This week is part two of my podcast with Kieran Rose. If you missed last week, please tune in. We covered a number of topics around neurodiversity, including who to listen to as parents when our child is diagnosed with so many opinions out there and the balance between what we want as parents for our children and what our kids actually need. This week we get into the topic of late diagnosis and what it means when older adults get diagnosed, and why it's helpful for autistic adults to consult with parents of very young children who may have not much in common, seemingly, with an adult autistic. Let's jump into part two of our podcast. The topic that I thought we would get into second but we'll flip it and we'll get into it last is this whole idea of people getting a late diagnosis. So you described in the first podcast we did with Virginia Spielman that you got diagnosed at age 23 and all of a sudden the past made so much sense to you. And we've heard this story from so many people where, you know, they get diagnosed late in life, some people in their 50s and all of a sudden they're like, "Oh, you know, it makes sense. I know um <clears throat> a relative of mine got diagnosed with ADHD in, in their adult life and it made so much sense why they struggled in school and and different things like that um i I wanted to you know sort of cover two paths here number one what does it mean like what is what is uh sorry you can keep hearing my squeaky chair every time I move um, it's a matter of what makes you think that you need to get a late diagnosis and then you know what's the outcome of having a late diagnosis so you know, uh, if people have been listening to this podcast, you've seen some of the podcasts that I've done on this chain in the last year, Am I Neurodivergent? Like My Child with Dr. Kathy Platzman, where we talked about how you'll, she, she gave the example of that Christmas dinner, although she said Thanksgiving, because, you know, in the US, Thanksgiving is a big, huge holiday, right? Football, turkey, and lots of food and stuff. And she says, you don't realize the patterns in your family till you go spend Thanksgiving with a different family. So her family is, you know, OCD anxious family. Like, oh, did you check the turkey? 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 And then another family, totally different, right? And I noticed this right away um, when I would have dinner at my in-laws because they're so different than my family. (laughs) Like completely different. And then you start to realize like where you feel comfortable, where you don't feel comfortable, why you feel comfortable. And, and, you, and so she said, basically, you might have neurodivergences in your family that were just considered normal because everybody was like that. And then you meet a different family and their neurodivergences are totally different or they're neurotypical, whatever. Um, so just some of the things I've noticed uh, jumped out at me when I started reading tweets of self-advocates, I was like, I do that. That's me. Okay, that's totally me. Yep, I did that as a kid all the time. Oh, that's interesting. And, you know, anybody that's known me my whole life, like, I was always teacher's pet, did amazing in school, you know, was successful at things that I did activity-wise, like, I never had any struggles, per se, whatever, but I always felt different. I always felt different from all of my friends. And, um things that I do, we were joking about, uh, you know, all tend to imagine every combination and permutation of anything that could possibly happen in the future around anything. And to me, it's not worrying. It's not anxiety. It's just, okay, if my son goes here, and he happens to fall into this place, and he breaks this well okay so he should bring this to watch out for that and then if this could happen he might need this and if this could happen he might need this so I'll worry about every possible thing and you know his dad called me his doomsday girlfriend when we started dating because I would say all these things and he's and he's like you're the doomsday girl like why are you thinking of it what in the world made you think of that and I was like I'm not worried about it I'm just want to be prepared in case it happens and lo and behold, Kieran tells me uh, last time we talked, "Oh, that's totally what neurodivergent people do." <laughs> Circumstance extrapolating is what you called it.
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a see that th- there's a negative term and. When you use the word worries and things, that's that's probably indicative of your mental state at the time. So, we we think about these things when we're worried because we're ruminating on like all the different potential outcomes and and things in a in a negative way. But we also do this when we're happy sometimes as well, and when we're looking forward to something, we still think about all the possible eventualities. Um, So that's why I call it circumstance extrapolation because it's kind of you know you're heading into a certain situation, so you're extrapolating all the possible outcomes. Um, but when we're feeling maybe not in a good place, we extrapolate more of the negative outcomes than, than the good ones. So it's, yeah, so it, it's absolutely, it's, it's quite an autistic and ADHD thing to do. So uh, not that I'm diagnosing you because you are not diagnosed. Um, I am not.
0: Uh, I'm on a weakness you know, just for we, curiosity's sake. We
1: keep talking about these things and you keep ticking them off. So it's not me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's funny because um, my whole life people have said to me, stop overthinking stop overthinking like i automatically assume oh i said something to this person and they haven't got back to me so they must be thinking this 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 and that and they must feel this 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 and that and therefore i better do this 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 and that meanwhile like it, they might have been oblivious or didn't even remember but i'm overthinking overanalyzing. Everything, all the time, Kieran. (laughs) My brain is constantly going.
1: (laughs) And sometimes we can get caught in those, especially kind of, I mean, what what you've just said there, that example you've given there. So then I would suggest that that anxiety has come from previous experiences where you maybe have thought about those things and they've turned out to be true um you know so so you the, you're being fed by your your previous experiences so that's a that's so what what you're describing there is a kind of a rational response um but when it becomes a bit more than that then we get into the area of kind of rejection sensitivity and stuff like that as well you know where it becomes a bit more extreme but um but no it's a it's a perfectly it's a perfectly naturally neurodivergent thing to do because it's you know, it, it 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 it's you're you're processing so much information. If you are neurodivert, if you are ADHD or autistic, you're processing an awful lot more information than other people around you. So, in order to sort through that, you need to think about all the different possible outcomes and when you're monotropic and you're focusing on certain things and your interest is driving you and your attention is driving you then you need to extrapolate all the outcomes that are around the thing that you're thinking about at that time so it's they're just logical steps that's all they are and unfortunately people who aren't adhd and autistic can't experience the world in this way so maybe don't plan ahead and maybe don't think about that but they frame thinking like that which is non-neurotypical thinking as well, that's anxiety and that's overthinking and that's the negative perception from their view. When in actual fact, that's your brain just doing what it needs to do. You're planning ahead. You're looking, you're looking for danger. You're being hypervigilant.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it certainly can be detrimental if you're like in my case, ruminating constantly worried about, you know um, what is the response going to be and, and things like that. Um, but one thing that you said was really interesting to me, which is your past experiences might be feeding that. Therefore, what we do with our children every time as they're growing up is gonna feed their experiences going forward, going back to when you talked about what our kids need versus what we want. If we're, if we're doing things that's, that are invalidating who they are and making them feel like they're a problem or making them feel like their behavior, um, they had control over that behavior, that's feeding that experience which which is the trauma that they're experiencing
1: if you think about um, the amount of people that have unhealthy attitudes towards their bodies and think negatively about their bodies usually if you go back to if you, if you were able to time travel back to their childhood usually that stems from things like people making comments about their weight or making jokes about them which individually and if existed within a vacuum wouldn't make much of a difference but these things collect. Over time, and they give us messages, and they become our unconscious thoughts. And you know, we, we we don't necessarily literally hear these things in other people's voices, but those voices are definitely there, and they repeat back on us. And you know, and really, what we're talking about here is is kind of PTSD and CPTSD, but on a much much more kind of minimal scale than you would <coughs> normally think. But still, things that cause reactions in us later on in life. So it's yeah, the the, the things that we. And even when we have conversations about our children and we don't think they can hear us. And maybe we say things that are more drastic and more dramatic, or we express our distress about something. But actually, if you think about how many autistic people can hear voices from a very long way away, you know, there's a lot of autistic kids out there that hear what their parents are saying about them and hear when their parents are not deliberately being derogatory or deliberately being negative about them, but still take on the emotion of that as well. And it's, There's a world of hurt out there unfortunately and we deliver most of it to our kids
0: yes um so let's end off with talking about what is what is um the point of these adult diagnoses so for instance you know if my my child is growing up and they're struggling they can't function in school and they can't they have problems motor planning so they can't catch a ball and they have a hard time playing without knocking everything down because they don't have their ideas to play yet or whatever their motor planning is still developing, blah, 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 all of these things. And then people will say, Oh, but that person's like me, for example, say I get diagnosed, which again, we don't know, but say I do. Well, you had no struggles growing up. How are you autistic compared to my child who has so many struggles like my own son? Has struggles and can't be in a a, a regular school or we haven't tried um, and needs one-on-one help all day because of regulation issues and and you know how how is it helpful or what is the purpose of getting that late diagnosis and how does that differ from our kids growing up who are labeled the same
1: so for many people getting that diagnosis is a validation um some people don't need the medical diagnosis to to kind of to 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 do what you've done, you know, to 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 talk to people and read other people's experiences and relate really hard to those experiences. Sometimes that's validation enough. Um, some people do, if they are privileged enough, take that next step for diagnosis, and usually that's because they're seeking kind of kind of some kind of official validation. The and it, it, it's interesting because lots of people who are late diagnosed kind of, you know. If you get validated for that, it's probably the first time you've ever been validated by a medical person in your life, because usually you're being ignored or you're not, You're being, you're, 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 you know, the, you're being invalidated in some other way. Um, so there's that level of it that, that people want to be recognized and want to be seen. Um, and that can be important for some people and that getting that diagnosis can be a real factor in, in actually kind of giving yourself permission to not blame yourself for everything that's gone wrong in your life. Um, And that's not to say that you get the diagnosis and then you blame the diagnosis for everything that's gone wrong in your life but what it does is help you hopefully if you're guided in the right way to reframe everything so that you recognize that not everything was your fault that other people have played a part in you having um, an unhappy life or having problems or hitting barriers with work and things like that, or relationships and, and all of those kinds of things. So it can help you reframe everything that's gone on and and actually take a lot of the guilt away from yourself. And there's a whole process after diagnosis usually when that you have to go through, which is traumatic within itself. Um, But on other levels, I mean, depending on your diagnosis, if it's ADHD, for example, then, actually medication might be a route that you go down um, because there are lots of ADHD people that struggle with their executive function. They struggle to, again, a conversation I was having this afternoon with someone that that, that hadn't had been misdiagnosed as bipolar and, and then had had that changed and wiped off their record and they've been given an ADHD diagnosis. So they were confused about the medication for ADHD. So I explained to them about monotropism and that the medication that you give People who are bipolar is is effectively a bit of a tranquilizer. You know, it slows them down and it it calms supposed to calm them. But actually, when you are ADHD, quite often what you need is a stimulant to allow your brain to do the things that it needs to do, which is to hyperfocus and be monotropic. So you know, there's a it's a it's a bit of a backwards forwards kind of way of thinking when you've got an ADHD brain and you do need that medication. So there are many neurodivergencies where medication can be a supportive tool. And I know that there's a lot of stigma around medication, but it can be really, really important and can be a lifesaver for some people if you've got the right professionals around you to support you to get the right medication. So so that can be another part of it. And then also it can be some people struggle with just self-identifying. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people out there that that don't see self-identification as valid. And that say, well, you're not truly this unless you've had a medical person give you this diagnosis, which I completely disagree with. Um, so going and getting that medical diagnosis can be a kind of a bit of a, a sticking your finger up at certain people who don't believe you. But it also can be a way of saying, you know, this is my badge and that means that I can go out and it kind of gives you permission to go out and talk to other people who also have the same badge. Now, nobody should need that permission. Nobody should have to feel like they need that permission, but some people do. So it enables people to go out and find their neurokin. It enables people to go out and find other ADHD people or other autistic people and and actually say, look, it's official, I'm like you. you know." So I can come and talk to you and I can come and share your experiences and you can share mine and we can relate and we can connect in a way that maybe they haven't had a connection in their past. So how that differs from a kind of, The the child that you're describing, the one that maybe has other disabilities going on and and is impacted in other ways. Well, firstly, that's an important thing to note, which we've talked about a lot in the past, that recognising that your child is not just one thing. And that usually if we're talking, the children that we're talking about here have got a lot of other things going on with them. So that's a lot of different diagnoses, and usually it's diagnoses that they're never given because those things are never looked at, because everything's shoved under these umbrella labels. And so then people aren't supported and children aren't supported in the right ways because nobody ever goes looking for the things that they need support for. It's just let's stick everything under the umbrella label and shove it in a corner and then that's autism and then we don't give you any help because that's just autism. Um so, yeah, so that's the kind of that's the first step to recognizing this. And secondly, before we started, we were talking about some of the questions we were going to cover. And and you mentioned kind of, uh, you know, so how does someone with a, a five-year-old, oh, how are they expected to, to to listen to someone who's maybe 45 like me? or well, I'm not 45 yet, but heading that way. But, you know, so so I'm an adult and they're a child. So what's the connection between them as a five-year-old and me as a, as a grown adult? Well, the connection is that I used to be that five-year-old. Um, maybe not exactly that five-year-old with exactly those things going on, but if that five-year-old has been identified as autistic and I am also autistic, that means that we share a lot of what's going on. Now I can speak now. We've again talked about this before that I have a really complicated relationship with speech, but people only ever see snapshots of me. They see me on a screen or they might see me at a conference or they might see me delivering training or But they only see a very small snapshot of me and they don't realize the things that I struggle with outside of that snapshot and those things that I mask through, which I do sometimes actively. And I talk about masking as unconscious and conscious and there are conscious aspects that I can choose to do um, that that protect me and enable me to get through certain situations, but are an enormous drain on me Um, so there's lots of kind of complicated things that I do that, that maybe single me out as different from that five-year-old child. But the example that you gave of like motor planning and stuff like that. So a dyspraxic person is a dyspraxic person, whether they're five or whether they're 50. Um, so there are reasons that I don't drive usually related to motor planning <laughs> and, 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 you know, so stuff, so this stuff doesn't go away, but sometimes we put extra scaffolding in place to support ourselves so that these things don't visibly impact us as much. Sometimes they're masked. Sometimes they're right forefront in front of people, but because they're not looking through that lens, they don't recognize them. So there's actually lots of things that connect me to those, that five-year-old's experience but you don't necessarily see those things because you've not been given the right information because you've not been informed because you've not been supported and guided in the right way. And because people haven't taken the time to sit down with you and talk to you about this properly. Usually, usually they're just trying to sell you different therapies and and trying to fix your child who doesn't necessarily need to be fixed because there's nothing wrong with them. You know, maybe they do need support in some ways. And that's a good thing to identify if they truly need that support But again, it comes back to what do you see, what do you want and what does your child need?
0: Yep, and I want to refer people to the last podcast where Kieran and I really went into great detail about functioning labels and a lot of the stuff he just sort of breezed past, breezed, bros? What's the past tense of breezed? Breezed past. (laughs) (laughs) Breezed past in, in that last bit was covered last podcast Uh, around functioning labels. So please do go back and listen to that. Um, some, Some really great points there. I think it is, to me, you know, in the way, certainly the United States is going now, where everybody has something to say about everybody's opinion, right? Um, how dare that person get diagnosed when they're that? You know it is nobody's business, really. It's like if that person is meaningful for them to get a diagnosis, let them get their diagnosis. You know what I mean it, yeah. you gave a number of reasons why it's very helpful, especially if they're struggling um and the point I wanted to make when you gave the example of executive function, like some people might need medication to help them um, focus and, and get things done. So I'll just give you an example, um, another pe- and other people might not. So if I am ADHD or whatever, uh, <clears throat> I personally don't think I would need medication, but I need tools. So for example, I will often start to cook something and totally forget because then I go do something else and I'm absorbed in what I'm doing. And then I'm like, crap, I burned the pizza again. You know. So what do I do? I set a timer and what do i do like today i woke up i looked at my schedule on my calendar and i'm like oh i'm doing a podcast with kieran today i totally forgot if i didn't have that calendar you know luckily only one time i forgot to go pick up my child at school and was a half hour late because something on my calendar i had said it the wrong way or something but i have alarms for every single thing if i don't I'm so distracted, I'm gone on and I focused on something else. Like that could be a very serious problem if the calendar and the alarms weren't enough for me.
1: So this this brings us back to, um, again, something that we've touched upon in previous kind of talks that we've had around the notion of disability. So what you've described there is actually, you might not see it this way and other people might not see it this way, but you've described a disabled person that needs AIDS In order to do the things that they need to do so you know both of us wear glasses if you took our glasses away from us we're disabled
0: yes
1: so having glasses doesn't mean we're not disabled but it means that we've got an aid to help us be what we do what we need to do and be able to see what we need to see so you know so it, it it comes back to kind of that disability isn't a dirty word because we are surrounded by disabled people so there are people who experience what you experience and can't remember to set the alarms in the calendar. So therefore they might need the medication in order to be able to, to to focus on what they need to do in order to be able to set those. That doesn't mean they don't need the calendar. It just means they need an extra level of support. So, you know, so to, it, it's what you're describing again is a neurodivergent experience. I mean, that's a, that's a typically ADHD kind of uh, example. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that that connecting that, you know, someone someone from another aspect might look at that and say, well, she doesn't need a diagnosis to be able to set a calendar. But that's one tiny snapshot of probably a lot of different things. And you you, you keep repeating, like, I never struggled growing up.
0: But in actual <laughs> fact,
1: you've just described struggling. Um, well, you the know,
0: funny thing is I was always late. Like the number of times my mom would be standing at the bottom of the stairs, come on, Daria school like i remember our entire family running through the detroit airport to make our flight to florida because i made us late you know like yeah just it little things like
1: that the more you kind of relate to other people's experiences the more of those memories will probably come back and you will realize actually no my childhood was not a neurotypical childhood i was not a neurotypical child that didn't struggle i actually was an adhd child or a neurodivergent child that did struggle but I had a supportive family around me that put things in place. I had platforms around me and scaffolding. And if I took all of those things away, all the stuff that neurotypical children don't need around them or only need in small doses, actually your life would have been very, very different and you would have obviously struggled.
0: I had a very hypervigilant mother who was, you know, did you do this yet? Are you doing this yet? Do you have any homework? Did you remember to bring this? Did you have this? Do you go into this? Like constantly. And I'd be like, oh, my mother and eggs all the time. But really, without that, I might have, like,
1: not <laughs> had a school. of sludge on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true.
0: And um, the other thing I wanted to say is that, like, I find that I need to rely on these tools more now than I did when I was younger. I was, like, on the ball with everything. I could memorize everything and remember. But I think the more stuff that gets added, like, I had a child. I have a child with special needs. I know even that term people don't like, but a child who need, has support needs, I'll say. Um, you know, me having to remember all of his needs and all of my needs. And, you know, I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and be like, oh, I forgot. He needs this. I forgot to do laundry last night. Oh, you know, like, do I have a clean mask? And it has to be his Mario masks because he won't wear the other masks, right? And if I'm not really on top of it, and that adds stress to me so then i'm always worried like okay did i do everything i have to do for tomorrow and so i try to be more um proactive about that now but it is it takes a lot of it drains my energy
1: and to the have older to think you get, about that the, the harder it is because your <laughs> your brain and body is burning out um, you know and that that that's uh, and that's not to say <laughs> that you're old and that's that's why it's happening but it does <laughs> as you get older you know we get more tired as we get older and when you are living a neurodivergent existence and you are maybe in a lot of ways you're able to to kind of live in your your authentic self and live in your the way that you need to, but in a lot of ways you're carrying around all this extra workload because there is masking that goes on and, th- and there's a lot of unconscious it You're carrying a lot of trauma and so on and so forth. All of that adds to to kind of the weight of your body, and it's expressed like that. And this is why I always say that, um, you know, th- th- we talk about executive dysfunction as as they used to talk about executive dysfunction as core features of autism and ADHD. I see executive dysfunction as a symptom because it's everywhere. Anybody that's living any kind of stress kind of life or is ill or, you know, we, baby brain is a really obvious example of that when someone's pregnant or post having a baby, like you're all over the place. That's your executive dysfunction because your body's stressed and your brain, stressed and tired and neurodivergent people, as we get older, the pressures on our brain and body become greater, and the wear and tear becomes more obvious. So, therefore, we do forget things more, and our executive dysfunction does display itself more. And but the the, the more you meet your own needs as you age, and the more you understand yourself, the better that will be. The more control and and you will have because because your body will be kind of self sustaining and and be getting the nutrients and and the the sensory stuff that it needs to in order to keep going and keep functioning. I think there's a there's a and this is completely anecdotal, but I think that there is a strong link between neurodivergence and dementia. And I think that link exists. I said that's completely anecdotal, and that's just coming from my thinking and, and lots of thinking that I do and conversations I have with people. But I think there is a strong link because our bodies and brains burn out and because we're working so hard to sustain ourselves in a world where we're surrounded by people that, that, whose needs are, are more met than ours.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Sorry, that was like a big thing to say, wasn't it?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, individual differences, right? So genetics, individual differences, uh, doesn't, he's not saying that everybody who's neurodivergent is going to have dementia. That's not what I'm saying at all, but I think,
1: (laughs) I I think that there's a strong correlation there and there's, we don't know anything about aging and neurodivergent people. There's, there's like zero research into it at all. Um, And there's a lot of conversations that strong conversations that need to be had and strong areas of focusing research that, that need to be there because I think anecdotally, there is a strong correlation. And I genuinely think that, that, that masking and burnout play a major role in that.
0: So budding PhD students, if you need some topics to research, there you go. The (laughs) literature is blank in that area.
1: Completely blank slate.
0: Awesome. Well, as always, thank you, Kieran. I hope that listeners found it enlightening to hear about this stuff, uh, whether it's relevant for you, for your child, for a relative, for clients you have. Uh, Check out the blog post at affectautism.com where I'm going to put links to past podcasts, that we talked about and some of the terms he threw out there that he threw out PTSD and CPTSD and I'll write out what that is in the blog post. So you'll know, uh, thanks Kieran. And I'll look forward to next time we speak again. Thank you, Dara. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. This episode of Affect Autism was brought to you by affectautism.com. This is an independent endeavor on my part. Please consider supporting the podcast and the website for as little as $5 US a month to receive extra bonuses, including floor time videos access, your questions answered on upcoming podcasts, my weekly insights video with my takeaways from each podcast, and more. You can become a member or a star member of Affect Autism at patreon.com slash